across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are then, smack bang in the middle of the week, waiting for some pearls of wisdom to fall from the lips of those who are charged with getting us all out of this COVID-inspired mess. And there's a fair chance that by the weekend, we will have them. The pearls of wisdom, I mean, uh, not getting out of the mess. Imagine the scenes in Downey Street this morning as the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, his Chief Advisor Dominic Cummings and the country's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty all sit around the table arguing about what to do next. I've been thinking about this quite a lot this morning and I'm trying to imagine a room full of people taking life very seriously but not actually really knowing whether to agree about anything. The newspapers have a variety of choices for them. A reduction in the time we may have to quarantine if returning to the UK from a holiday in an unsafe country. A lifting uh, of the restrictions to the Balearics and the Canary Islands for hundreds of thousands of British holidaymakers. The reintroduction of testing at airports for people coming home and growing concerns about a second wave of the virus sweeping across Europe. Witty, of course, will be urging caution because that's all he ever does. After all, it was his idea to make people coming back from Spain self-isolate for a fortnight because 10 people tested positive last week. Boris will be trying to convince him to relax the rules a bit more so people can spend more money to help revive the economy. Dominic Cummings, of course, uh, will simply be sitting there uh, trying to work out which journalist he doesn't want to speak to this week. This could take some time. 0344 499 1000. We need to hear from you all today on whether you've had to cancel your plans, what your airlines and hotels are telling you to do, and whether, like Transport Minister Grant Shapps, you're cutting your holiday short to come home and go into quarantine. We'll be going live to Spain later on, but I can honestly say I have literally no idea where we will be on this in a week's time. I don't think anybody does. If you've got a holiday booked for sometime in the beginning of August or the middle of August or the end of August, I don't think you know whether you're going to go, do you? And if you do know, I'd love to know how you know, because I'd love to know whether anyone can know what's going to happen next. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Neil Oliver, historian and archaeologist, of course, presenter of The Coast, uh, with his take on what's happening and why love is more important than money in every single situation. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the world's fastest growing radio station. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's a variety of stories in the paper this morning, but I mean, the main uh, point of concern at the moment would seem to be uh, the holiday situation. You know, we are, as I've said many times this week, a country that seems to be slightly split down the middle uh, because basically uh, we've got people who want to go on holiday. We've got people who want to go out for dinner. We've got people who want to go back to the shops. We've got people who want to go to the pubs. And we've got other people who don't want to do any of those things, right? Uh, Chris Whitty, I have to say, uh, who is the chief medical officer, has previously said that we shouldn't lift the lockdown, that we've been lifting the lockdown too early. He's a very cautious man. He's a medical guy. You might expect him to be cautious. However, perhaps it's time to say that Chris Whitty is being too cautious. And I'd like to hear from you on this one, because at the end of the day, here we have a virus uh, which has killed a lot of people. But it's also been infecting a lot of people who haven't died. A lot of people have got this disease and have dis- and discovered that they can actually survive it, which is not to diminish in any way those who have had terrible problems with it, those who have become incredibly ill and some of whom are still trying to recover months later. But this is not to diminish that at all. But it is time, is it not, to put some of this stuff into perspective. It is time to say that not everybody who gets coronavirus is going to have a bad time. Just because 10 people tested positive, having come back from Spain last week, 
Does that mean that the entire nation should be locked down? Does it mean that people should have to cancel holidays, that flight companies and travel companies stop going there? Should it mean, in fact, that we just completely cut Spain off and leave their tourist industry to wither and die on the vine? Should we make people who have gone there on holiday in good faith because the quarantine was lifted have to go into two weeks isolation? One of the things in the papers this morning uh, is that isolation for 14 days may be reduced to seven days. Not least to add on to that, before we talk to George Pascoe Watson, who's going to set us up this morning with what he thinks the government should be doing, we get news that Luxembourg is the hotspot for COVID in Europe right now. But according to the British government, it's a safe country to visit. It's got a rate of infection five times the rate in Spain. And yet Spain is a place where if you go, you have to quarantine when you come back. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Let's talk to George Pascoe Watson, who is, of course, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications, to make some sense of it all. George, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Um, You know, I'm not sitting here to be critical of the government, as you know, George, because uh, that's not what I do. But I do point out things that they may not be getting right. And I think with Chris Whitty at the helm, they're being very overcautious here, aren't they? It's a huge dilemma, isn't it, Mike? And uh, if you're the government, one minute you're trying to protect the health of the nation, the next you're trying to protect the financial health of the nation. Prime Minister only a few weeks ago was saying, okay, let's close down the lockdown, let's go out, let's enjoy summer safely. Um, And this thing could be over by Christmas if we get it right. Um, It's a very, very difficult situation when the numbers begin to turn the wrong way, as as I understand they have now begun to turn. And in private, uh, ministers are being warned that the numbers are creeping up. And, and that 10 number that you mentioned is, is just indicative, I'm afraid, uh, of things going the wrong way. And that's a reality. And if you are in government, I guess you are torn between the financial health and the medical health of the nation. That's why it's such a difficult decision. The best thing any government can do is continue to be transparent and clear and open with the public to say, this is what's happening and this is what we think you should do. And I think the critical thing is lots of us, and I'm gonna say this, it sounds simple. Lots of us have forgotten the basics. Washing hands thoroughly, continuing to socially isolate, uh, socially distance, I mean, uh, and make sure that we are getting tested if we have any symptoms. I think are the the critical key things that we can do as we push on for a vaccine. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, George? Because one of the things that I've noticed today um, is that the latest figures from the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control uh, is this about Luxembourg in particular. 1,382% higher than the UK's infection rate is what they get it at, right? Uh, They have the 14-day cumulative number of COVID-19 cases per 100,000 in in Luxembourg is 222.4 compared with 15 for the UK. Uh, and in Spain, the figure is 215. So, I mean, this place is way off the scale in terms of its uh, reinfection number. However, the Foreign Office says Luxembourg is exempt from the FCO advice against all non-essential travel. This is based on the current assessment of COVID-19 risks. So, I mean, they've either missed it uh, or they've got it completely mm-hmm. wrong. And, and you're pointing out, which is one of the great difficulties in running any government, is there are different parts of the government seeing different bits of information, yeah. different pressures on different parts of the government, whose responsibility uh, lies where. 
and making the right decision based on lots of different pieces of information. To you and I, it would seem obvious that uh, the infection rate here in the UK is not something um, that we should be as concerned about. But, you know, you're not a politician, I'm not a politician, and the political, the political pressure that people face is a lot greater than the one that we have to do. And, and I guess the Prime Minister is always thinking about his legacy and what people are going to say in six months' time and a year's time and not just in six days' time. And that's why you tend to get people, uh, you know, reverting to the safest place that they can possibly be, even if that means that some people will not be able to have their summer holiday or it will be disrupted in some way. And let's be honest, it is incredibly frustrating and very annoying and costly for real people yeah. who spent their own money to go abroad and to take that chance uh, and only to see it die or wither or be cancelled uh, or even be abandoned out there or not be able to get back to work because of quarantine. But if you're a minister, a government minister, you've got a different pressure. And your pressure is, I'd rather that than the alternative, which could be far, far worse. Yes. That's the calculation then. Yeah, and I totally get that. I also take into account the fact that if you were booking a summer holiday this year, you ought to have been aware that it could go horribly wrong. You ought to have been aware that it basically could be uh, a bit of a problem uh, because conditions are constantly changing from week to week. And I think some people who have been whining about the fact that they didn't expect this to happen should have been perhaps better prepared. But the only worry I've got, George, is, and I take your points absolutely, and, and, and I know that they are sincerely said and, and real. However, if the facts are wrong, that you're basing whatever it is that your decision making uh, is, then why are the facts wrong? And why can you not get the facts right before you make those decisions, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I've been amazed by that too. And, and it turns out that even the science is not based a lot of the time on, on uh, let me say, a united view. Yes. Lots of scientists have different views about what they're seeing, about what the evidence is coming in. The data that's being collected is not uniform. Um, and, and this is not just a UK issue. This is a global issue. Everyone's in the same boat. The point is here, <clears throat> we've never, as a as human race, had to deal with an issue like this before. And therefore, people are learning as they go. Uh, you'd like there to be much more certainty around the figures and the numbers and the stats and the facts. You, of course you would. But if, when the scientists can't even agree, then it's a very, very hard thing to do I mean, I, 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 I'd hate to throw this in there, but, you know, we go back 15, 20 years to the Iraq war and the prime minister then, Tony Blair, had to make a decision about whether or not Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He, he didn't know. He had to take his decision based on the best evidence that was available at the time. And mm. he took a decision and it turned out it was the wrong decision based on facts which weren't solid. All politicians can really do is cross-examine the evidence as hard as they possibly can, take nothing for granted and make sure that they are asking the right questions. Yeah, no, I get that as well. But certainly there seems to be a growing um, sort of, uh, shall we say, feeling that there should be more testing going on where people are coming back from holiday, because rather than making everybody go into quarantine for 14 days regardless, surely it would be more sensible to ensure that actually only those who are at risk or who are infected uh, or who are testing positive go into quarantine. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the government would probably agree with that. Um, uh, and I know that Heathrow are pushing very hard uh, to, uh, to persuade the government to do a trial uh, there. Um, and they're confident about their facts. The difficulty, I think, uh, is that uh, not everybody in, in, in the science world 
is convinced about the, the veracity of the tests, and uh, and I think that's that's, a, that's a, that would be a solution that is very uh, important to try and un you know un if you like ease the logjam of people coming into the country. It is so important. The testing regime is so important uh, to get it right. But it is also true that as Dido Harding is in charge of the testing regime in this country, Baroness Harding, she said, you know you can test one day and somebody can come up with it the next day. And, and so it's not a panacea, it's not an absolutely silver bullet. Uh, and I think that's true. And that again explains why it's so difficult. Yes, exactly right. So, I mean, is there a cost issue here? I mean, for example, if Heathrow were to start doing these tests as a kind of a, um, a, a pilot run, some kind or another, who's paying for the tests? Yeah, well, I think all of those things are to be sorted out. And I certainly see no evidence that there has been a cost problem for the government in terms of spending money in trying to find solutions and tests. Uh, as we know, the government has been spending a lot of taxpayers' money trying to find a vaccine, trying to find solutions, trying to find tests, and trying to make sure that we're, we're best prepared for these situations. So uh, it, it, all these things are, are yet to be to be sorted out. But I think the government needs to give permission to Ethro for this specific test to be trialled. Hmm. And that will be, I suppose, a big breakthrough uh, if and when it happens. But the thing that surprised me, and I mentioned this the other day, George, is that 600,000 Britons are currently on holiday in Spain. I mean, it's an awful lot of people. And I know that 18 million people go there every year, so it's a fraction of that. But, I mean, it does tell you that there are people uh, who are quite happy to go out on a limb, to take a chance, to go and, and uh, take their families on holiday and try and return to life as much as normality can tell them to do so. And yet there are another group of people entirely here who seem as if they're frightened of doing anything. And that captures entirely, Mike, the Prime Minister's uh, total conflict mm. in his mind. You know, uh, on the one hand, he wants to get the nation back to work. We see the Daily Mail uh, if you like, almost shaming businesses who have told their staff to stay at home for the meanwhile. Uh, I see you're in, in, in head office. I'm still back. Uh, I've been tweaking them in my house. Um, so there's a, there's a real sense that people are still terrified of going back to work and we want to encourage back to normality. But mm. at the same time, if we see the numbers of infectivity creeping up, then unsurprisingly, people will want to look after their employees and make sure they're not exposing people unnecessarily to risk. Mm. And I think that's my earlier point about reminding people how one of the key ways we actually do tackle this is by taking care of our own personal hygiene and taking as few risks as we possibly can and continuing to behave responsibly as individuals, I think will be an important part of the government's messaging this week. Yes, I think so. Um, are we expecting there to be another announcement because they're now going week to week, I think, on the kind of various different um, amber, red, green light system for, uh, for for countries around the world in which you can go to without, without feeling in any danger? Um, so would we expect there to be some changes on Friday, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's probably in people's minds, of course, you know, ministers are, are in many ways, Mike, no better than you and I, in the sense that they are dealing with live information as it comes through. And they're going to make a decision much closer to Friday, I think, than, than uh, they can, rather than making a decision today. They want to see what the actual figures are. This is a very finely balanced time where they don't want to spook people. They want to encourage uh, people, you know, taking commercial decisions, going on holidays, going back to the office, but mm. at the same time, they don't want to uh, be sort of flagrant about it and irresponsible. So I think we'll 
We'll see further information from the Foreign Office later this week, probably, and maybe some more interventions from the Prime Minister between now and then. Yeah, and certainly suggestions coming out that they've noticed that their advice on Luxembourg uh, is in fact uh, in error, and they may address that, is what I'm being told uh, inadvertently, just as we've been speaking here this morning, because uh, it turns out that they may start more quarantining for more countries um, uh, over the course of the next couple of days. Yes, they might, but equally they might, as you said, I think earlier on in this call, um, they might also reduce the length of time that people will have to be in quarantine, yeah. uh, which is, I suppose, the best thing they can do. If they can't close quarantine at all, because it would be irresponsible, then at least reduce the number of time days that people have to stay in isolation. But I think the isolation thing still matters. We, It's, it's important not to forget that only three months ago, we did manage to get very much on top of it in this country by having uh, uh, a very strong regime and people respected it. I'm not saying we should go back to that by any stretch of the imagination. And I think your point about having perspective on all this is very, very important. Yes. Um, uh, and I think that's where the government needs to be, and I think it will be. I think that's exactly right. George Pascoe Watson, thank you very much indeed, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications. Bottom line for me here uh, is that it's all about common sense, as ever, uh, with everything that we talk about on this show, because the idea that somehow we cannot ever go anywhere again without locking ourselves in to a house for two weeks afterwards is nonsense. The world doesn't work like that. The idea that somehow, because this virus is not ever going to go away, that we can't ever return to normal city working. We can't ever return to offices. We can't ever mingle in the way that we used to. We can't ever get back on a train. We can't ever get back on a bus. We can't ever get back on an aeroplane. That's never going to be the recipe for anything but absolute and utter terminal economic disaster, is it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, let's talk to Theresa Wickham, who's a retail expert, because uh, there's a bit of a supermarket war going on. Amazon uh, came out yesterday and basically said uh, that they will deliver free uh, to people if they're part of one of their uh, sort of Amazon Prime type programs. And uh, this has put uh, the old supermarket slightly on edge. Uh, and according to The Times this morning, Amazon has gone nuclear with free deliveries. Theresa, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. I suppose this was always going to happen, wasn't it? As Amazon gets bigger, it puts more and more of a grip on uh, uh, on almost everything that it surveys. Yes, and this has been planned for some time. I mean, I know it's come out now because online shopping has rocketed during the virus, mm. but um, this is something they've been thinking of long before, and it takes time to do it. Uh, it's only free to Prime members. Right. <clears throat> and you pay an annual subscription to be a Prime member. And, of course, it will only apply to Fresh, and it's only got, it sounds a huge amount, but it's only got 10,000 uh, offer to start with. Yes, but I suppose it's a slippery slope, isn't it? Because an awful lot of the um, uh, the supermarket delivery companies, I mean, Ocado, for example, is going to move across from doing Waitrose and Morrison's, I think, to Marks and Spencer's later in the year. Um, sometimes they charge quite a lot of money, depending on what time that you want the delivery to come. So it could undercut them quite substantially, I suppose. Well, Amazon has got very deep pockets, and mm. when it enters the market, um, people um, realise that it's it, if it's not a serious play at the beginning, it will eventually become one. And it's interesting that you talk about Ocado, because um, Ocado picks from warehouses, which is what Amazon is doing. Mm. The other retailers pick from store. You have somebody to do your shopping for you. Right. 
Um, so they've got a much broader spectrum uh, of things that they're able to choose from. And um, they're only doing it in London and the Southeast to start with. Um, so if you're not a prime member, there is a shopping fee. So it's a bit, you, you know, it's not free at all because you've got to be a prime member membership fee. But if you buy a lot from Amazon, it's well worth being that. Um, so we're going to see, and it's fresh. Uh, so they will obviously have to get quite a lot of, uh, distribution centres. They'll be buying up warehouses. Mm. We'll maybe look at shopping, out-of-town shopping centres where there'll probably be an Amazon warehouse rather than a retail outlet before. Yes, and I dare say more vans uh, on the roads as well because that seems to be something that people very rarely actually think about. That It's all very well getting all this stuff home delivered, but it means that the roads are even more chock-a-block than they would otherwise be. That's a very good point. And the other fact is that Amazon don't own their own logistics delivery. Mm. Um, they they rely on, as you say, the white van rolls up. Um, none of the others, you know, they use a logistics service. So um, we'll we'll see how it goes. Right. Um, and do you think but that... it will shake up the market? Sorry. I was going to say, do you think that the, the, the people that are likely to use this Amazon service will be people who already get home deliveries? Or do you think they will kind of further kill off uh, the high street and places to go shopping physically uh, because it's just more more deliveries well i think it depends what they've got to offer i mean before um our virus we were using about um seven percent of people were shopping online for food then it rocketed up um and it still stayed up there it depends on two things how many people particularly older people don't want to go out to the shops particularly if they think it's going to get worse so mm. they might try it if they can't get a slot on one of the others and more people working from home will be happy to have a delivery during the day whereas they wouldn't have had if they weren't there they were in their office yes that's a very good point as well because i guess more people now um although i you know it seems to be a thing of the past for me now whenever i walk around you see people leaving stuff at people's doors now in a way they never used to you know how you used to come home and there'd be that dreaded you know uh, card in the door saying please come to our collection yes, point yes. about 50 miles away to come and get your package they just seem to leave them now they don't seem to care whether you're there or not no and it's interesting with all this new building whether house builders will think about building a sort of a chill container yeah. to the side, side that you can you know there's a locker there is some locker systems already which amazon have started right. um so that there's there's lots of things that uh, can be quite ingenious uh, in developing this market. Of course. And I guess uh, whatever happens, uh, it's never going to be good news for the high street uh, and for, for people who are actually operating retail shops, as it were, proper shops that people have to go in and shop in. No, it isn't. But the high street was changing in any case. A lot of the people who've suffered now uh, were on the edge to start with, and this kind of pushed them over. But retail is like a circle. So shops shut and then others open. I mean, before the virus, the fastest ones growing were nail bars and barbers because right. more men have got beards. Right. Interesting times. Theresa, thank you very much indeed. Theresa Wickham there uh, giving us the lowdown on what's happening with Amazon. Basically, Amazon, in the end, will probably own absolutely everything that ever gets delivered to you at any time from any place, even if it's not theirs, even if they haven't sourced it, uh, they will bring it to your door. But I quite like this idea of uh, uh, these collection points, perhaps, being put into places. I think one of the things we have to seriously think about, uh, we had a conversation about cycling, cycling yesterday and cyclists and the state of the roads in this country, which is still going, going mad on Twitter. I've been having loads of rows with loads of people on Twitter who are cyclists who tend to be a fairly objectionable crowd, I have to say, uh, in terms of the things they say. But 
in the end, the more delivery vans that are out there, the worse the traffic is. And I don't think there's any coincidence that when so many people are now working from home, that the roads are absolutely clogged because nobody's using public transport. Effectively, the trains are empty. Nobody's really going to work. So what they're doing is getting more and more stuff delivered to the house. And that is making the roads completely gridlocked. And I think somebody needs to start thinking about the wherewithal of how to fix that and how to manage it and how to deal with it. Because otherwise, there's going to be more pollution. There's going to be more people supposedly dying as a result of that pollution. And so in the end, uh, not only are you killing off the economy, you're killing off people. And everybody's getting everything delivered to their house because they can. I'm not sure that's the way to go. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, one of the things I'm very happy to say that we've developed uh, on this show is a series of people who we talk to on a regular basis uh, about just life in general. I think people really enjoy it. I think it gives us an opportunity to stretch our legs, if you like. There's none of this kind of, you know, he said, she said. There's no arguments. There's no shouting. Um, there's no uh, denying people the right to speak. And in fact, what we're doing is giving you, the listener, an opportunity to hear what people have to say um, in a method which I think is a much better one uh, than some other places do. So let's welcome Neil Oliver once again uh, to the show. Neil, a very good morning to you. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me back. No, not it's at all. Good. Not at all. Listen, um, a great piece again this week in the Sunday Times where you talked about money making the world go round. But but the thing that we may be missing here in all of the kind of uh, mask wearing um, and the not going out is the kind of the human interaction and the touch and, and, and not, not, not just the love of one another, but the whole kind of experience of, of being with other people. Very much so. Um, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not calling out to the to the government to, to change what it's doing. And as you said, I mean, it's obviously a, it's a, a nightmarish, the complicated and constantly changing picture that that all of these poor souls are having to try and deal with on an hour by hour, minute by minute basis. But I just feel there's a there's a, it's in, it's incumbent upon us all to, to to be mindful of the fact that there will be consequences for for the actions that are being taken. And I de I definitely feel that uh, you know the, the the necessity to to maintain this, the distance between one another uh, and to and to wear masks will have consequences on the way that we we deal with one another and it's difficult enough you know, we know that uh, you know tempers get frayed so easily um, and the the more uh, complications that are added into that the cocktail that is you know human interaction it just makes it harder for people and I, you know, I think we'll, we'll have to just be mindful of the fact that wearing masks, holding each other at arm's length, necessary though it is or may be, we'll have to get beyond it at some point. Or if this situation continues indefinitely, we will need to treat each other better because it, it, it seems that at the moment tempers are just getting more and more frayed. And, and you know, people aren't being as tolerant of one another as, as we need to be. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether you've been able to see what's been going on in Portland, Oregon, um, where there's kind of rioting on a mass scale going on still by and large caused by the whole Black Lives Matter argument. But there's militias in America now where you see terribly frightening images of, of two different groups of people literally armed to the teeth, um, turning up wearing masks, carrying machine guns, burning buildings down. It looks like a scene from zombie apocalypse to me. Yes, I, I think what I think what most people um, of all of all colours and creeds, I think what most people feel when they look on at that is just a, a smouldering anxiety 
first and foremost mm. about what the future might hold. Uh, and I think it's it's a demonstration of, of what we have seen from history down through the centuries and the, the millennium that the millennia that there's a there's a, an urge uh, often for revolution and and destruction. Um, and you know you know Roger Scruton famously said words to the effect that uh, destruction is exhilarating and thrilling uh, and the work of uh, creation or building is is slow and laborious mm. and boring. And there is that thrill. And I think, it, you know, you mentioned uh, Portland, which is, I suppose, the most infamous example at the moment, uh, where in, at the one hand, on the one hand, where people are justifiably saying that uh, things need to improve and things need to change, it, it, coming straight in on the coattails of that seems to be this desire to destroy. And, you know, and the pictures of the aftermath of, of protests are so disheartening uh, because places are, are just being ruined mm. uh, and strewn with, with you know, litter and mess and, and graffiti and, and broken windows. And, and there's no account taken of, of, you know, whether the people whose businesses and properties they're destroying are in favour of, of calls for change or standing opposed to it. It's just a wholesale uh, uh, destruction that seems to be meted mm. out across the board. Uh, and it's... It's so. It is. It is so easy. It is so easy to destroy. And we have to, at some point, surely in the evolution of our species, we have to try and get to a point where our first reaction is not vengeance for the past, and not to seek to settle scores, because that is just what perpetuates the idea of blood feud. Mm. You know, you hurt me, and so now I've got the upper hand, briefly or for the longer term, and now I will hurt you. And that just perpetuates the cycle of violence and destruction. And, and if only, if only there could be a time where there was a call for a, 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 for change and, and rapprochement and, and conversation that wasn't presaged and, and punctuated with a, a hellish moment of just violent yeah. destruction, which, which pleases no one. And whatever short-term, you know, bloodlust might uh, inspire it, it, it never, ever helps no and we know this and there's a certain irony as well too. and violence in the past and it never helps no and there's a certain irony as well to it a friend of mine who lives in um, in santa monica put out a picture uh, on social media of a, a particular block on santa monica boulevard in west hollywood where all of the site all of the businesses have basically been boarded up because the riots destroyed them one was a, a, an indian restaurant one was a shop that was run by some Chinese uh, people. Um, another place was, was run by um, some people from uh, Eastern Europe. You know, it was basically a very multicultural sort of street block. And there was graffiti all over the boarded up signs that said peace and love. But basically, these businesses have been destroyed by people who say that they want to protect those particular minorities. Yeah, the, ap the, the appetite, the seemingly endless, insatiable appetite for destruction is so... Uh, discouraging. Uh, I, I, you know, I wrote. You mentioned that I had written at the weekend, and this is on a, on a, on a much smaller scale, you know. But as a as a consequence of of lockdown in where I live in Stirling in Scotland, you know, I, you couldn't help but notice that because everything was on pause, uh, that everything started to get overgrown. Yes. you know, the verges and, and, and the flower beds that are normally you know lovingly tended by the by. by the council gardeners and all the rest of it and and the, you know the grass and weeds were coming up through the pavements because people weren't walking on them and the 
even the even the tarmac of the roads you know the grass was starting to come up in the it, you know where the white line would be because cars weren't passing over it and you, you see the how quickly it, it, just a reminder that it only takes a few weeks yeah. really for uh, for disorder and an element of chaos uh, to, to come in uh, and it, it's so I think it's it's so important it's it would be so helpful if people uh, were more minded to care you know to care about maintaining places I mean it, it's not just you don't have to go the lengths of deciding not to smash the windows of a shop or not to daub graffiti all over something it's so much smaller than that if, if everyone is um, likes to say that they that they care about the world around them and, and that they and they care to hand on something in a, a better condition to the to the generation coming after them and that in, in reality that has to manifest itself in the smallest acts first of all you know it's you know charity begins at home as they say and i'm all you know i always think um that you want uh I, I, before someone says that they're going to change the world before someone says that they would uh, run the country or the world differently, I'm always interested to see, or I'm always curious to know how they run their life. Mm. You know, if someone, if I want to know that someone, that their spare room is is, uh, is, is tidy and orderly and that they're in the habit of making their bed right. and washing the dishes and putting them away and taking care and cutting the grass right. in their garden if they have one or clipping the, clipping the hedges and, and looking after things because if they don't, I would be suspicious of that person. If they can't look after their own small thing, realistically, should they be running the home office or the or, or, or defense yeah. or changing the world if they can't if they can't maintain and I'm, I'm always when, when people say in, in, in the case of protests, for example, that are going on in, in the United States and, and, and here at, at home, when people say we need to change and we could make a better world. When the when the first act is just a chaotic destruction, I think, well, are you serious? Yeah. Are you serious that you that you are actually someone who should be entrusted with with making and building a better world? If your first act on getting any kind of power is to destroy what's there just wantonly, mm. so I see that as a fundamental disconnect. And and at that point, I've, I just become a bit deaf to anything else that they might want to say. Yes. Because I think, well, you're, the first thing you did when you got the chance was to smash a window, right, or or cut down a tree. I don't see it. Well, whenever been... I see people marching around with placards, I always think of that great scene from Father Ted uh, where the guys are standing outside a theatre or a cinema, I think it is, with a sign that just says, down with this sort of thing. And they're not entirely sure what this sort of thing is. They just want to make sure that it doesn't happen and it's not made available to anybody. And it's a kind of a recalcitrant sort of demonstration about nothing at all. Yeah, I, I think people, if you have, if, if, if your life has given you by your own efforts or, or in any other way things that you love however small you know to use the analogy of a garden i suppose you know a, a, to create a, a garden even a small garden you know beside your house is an enormous amount of work and it's slow and laborious um it's not very glamorous uh, and, it, and it's constant it's, it's an incessant uh, labor mm. of love in order to create something that briefly flowers for a few weeks or months every year and and gives you that and gives you that pleasure uh, and once you but once you've done that for people who are gardeners and they, and they create then you, you instantly have something that you want to protect and so it, it brings out that sort of conservative instinct yes because you now have something 
in which you have invested time and labor and love and you want it to survive yeah um and and that's a, you know so that's where that that's where that sort of conservative protective instinct comes from that so many people have mm. but then if you have if you have nothing and if you never either have the opportunity to invest in something or even given the opportunity if you never do invest in the in the laborious work of building then you never will get to the point where you care enough about anything to protect it mm. and hope that it will be in a condition that can be passed on into the future yeah uh, and, and also, you'll probably think, you'll probably have a different attitude as well towards the history, perhaps, of your country or the history of your family and the history of, of where we are and how we got to where we are. Because I was looking um, at your podcast, you do a podcast, Love Letter to the British Isles. Um, and this week I was thinking, you know, it's what you've just said is, is applies to education as well, because it's much harder to learn things than it is to just ignore them. You have to invest some time. You have to look at things. You have to read things. You have to visit places. And you went uh, to uh, Grimes Graves this week, uh, which is a fascinating place. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, gosh. Uh, Grimes Graves is, is the name given to it's a, it's a It's a it's quite a large archaeological site, actually, in Norfolk. Um, and when you arrive, it's a bizarre spectacle because it, it's like a lunar landscape. It's, it's grass-covered craters right. dotted. It's like looking at the moon, only the moon where grass has grown over the craters. Um, it's called it, Grimes Graves is, a, is an Anglo-Saxon name that was given to it, and it means the quarries of the, of the masked man or the quarries of the hooded man. It's a reference to, to a god. In reality, though, it's, uh, it's the remains of shafts that were dropped down into the chalk by Neolithic farmers four or five thousand years ago because they were in pursuit of flint, a layer of flint that they knew to be there. And to get at it, they were prepared to drop shafts, you know, 30 feet deep, 20 feet wide to get down to the level mm. where they could get access to the flint. And then they excavated uh, chambers and tunnels and, and cavities from which they brought out the, the flint. And it was done on a semi-industrial scale. You know, we don't necessarily think of the first farmers organising themselves so comprehensively that, yeah. they could, that they could conduct such a such a feat but he did and they were bringing out massive massive amounts of flint and they weren't just using it themselves it was going out into the wider british isles you know they were a, they were a source for the supply uh, of uh, of flint that many people were able to use and and when you when you go there now the, the archaeologists have emptied out one or two of them and there's now limited admittedly but there's access to some of these chambers and it's absolutely extraordinary uh, hair-raising, magical almost, because you go down into this still uh, airless environment and there are still the picks that were a, a reindeer antler that the miners were using to, as part of the, mm. ex, you know, when they were digging out the, the chalk to get at the flint. And 5,000 years ago, when they finished, they just laid the, they just laid the, the picks against the wall of the mine and, and went away and backfilled them and did something else. And it's the thought that those tools have just lain there, mm. slumped against the wall, exactly where they were put, while all the history that we care about has happened. You know, the, you know, the rise and fall, empires, kingdoms, wars, those antlers were just there waiting in the dark to be rediscovered. And you go yeah. down into the, that chamber at, at Grand Cruz and you, you can persuade yourself that, you're, that you've walked into the Neolithic world. Now, I have had countless experiences like that because I'm interested in archaeology and I've had the great privilege of, of pursuing a lot of these stories uh, all over the British Isles, mm. England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And fundamentally, what I wrote, what I, what I speak about in that 
podcast and, and what I've written about and continue to write about is that I almost, w without making any choice, I fell in love with the landscape of the British Isles. The whole place, the whole island, because I've seen so much of it and I've been, I've been treated to so many uh, stories of the long evolution of our species, all the adventures, all the disasters, all the endeavour, the aspiration and the ambition, and it's, it's made manifest in things that are still there, the Stonehenges, the Averys, places like Grimes Graves, other places where you see evidence of people thousands of years ago overcoming their circumstances and doing something grand, grand endeavour. And it's, it's that I now have, I'm in love with the, with the landscape of the British Isles and the stories of the British Isles and the history and the archaeology of the British Isles. And it, 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 I'm suffused with it. And so and, and on account of that, when I look out at, at the present and I see what's happening, I, I, I'm responding, I, I feel I'm responding to the, to the place as though it's going through a time of pain. And, and I want it to get through the time of pain and, and to, because times of pain have come before, but the history shows us that we have overcome and moved on and aspired and had inspiration and done great things in the aftermath of disaster. Yeah. And I simply, I take great comfort from knowing that we have overcome one challenge after another for thousands of years. And eventually we get up into the, the high ground, if you like, and we can look out over the landscape and remember who we are and where we've come from and do the next great thing. But, but the next great thing will be an act of creation and not destruction. It will come from a, an inspiration, great or small, and we will we will hopefully, I hope with all my heart, that we'll move on to doing something great. Well, I hope so. And maybe that's the problem at the moment, that all we have is a lot of people looking out and, and seeing the gutter as opposed to the stars and seeing, you know, bad things and seeing negativity and seeing, you know, the COVID uh, virus and, 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 and Brexit and every, all the things that they think of in a negative manner. I mean, I'm looking today at a tweet from the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's office, uh, which says this, for too long, our public spaces have failed to reflect our city's great diversity and it's time for this to change. Today, we've announced our new partners board who will provide the expertise needed to improve diversity in London's public realm. Now, basically, they're saying um, that London, by and large, was uh, was kind of um, sort of demographied and, and created by Victorian Britain. Most of the names of the roads are Victorian. Most of the statues are Victorian. Most of what we see around London is Victorian, which I don't agree with, by the way. Um, but they're going to set up a sort of a, a panel of people to see whether we should be renaming things, whether we should be removing things and kind of really editing our history in a way. And we've we've discussed uh, aspects of this uh, this story, this conversation before, and mm. you know I've said before, and I'll say again. That I, personally, I'm not in the, I am not in the business of erasing history. Um, I think you you add to stories, and you you accept and seek to understand what is there that's been gifted to us from the past. And, and, and in this context, you're talking about the built environment of a city like London. But this, you know, the story of London is there in the in the street names, you know, Threadneedle Street, mm. you know, some mm. of these evocative place names. And if and from those those words, those place names, you you can, if you have a mind, you can you can investigate the stories yeah. that grow out of them. And and London, London is a is a massive book of stories, you know, with a with a with a first page long ago and the more recent pages now. And it, it tells the story of London is is without 
it, it, it might have an equal somewhere else on the planet, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a, a greater story to be told. No. There are other great stories, but the story of London is extraordinary from Roman antecedents and before. I mean, there are people here before people in London before the Romans, of course there were, but you've got thousands of years of a story, and it's all there in the landscape, and yet. There's a huge impact that was made on the on the built environment of of London during the Victorian era. Of course, there was because it was a it was a time of great inspiration and aspiration. Sometimes you look at what the Victorians and people at like Isabad Kingdom Brunel and whatever were capable of, and you think, God, I wonder why they stopped short of going to the moon. Yeah, you know, the, the, their their ambition was without limit, uh, and and what they what they built and what they created was extraordinary. It simply was an extraordinary part of the story, but it's only a part of the story. Yeah. You know, the Roman London is there. The great fire of London, if you dig a hole in parts of London, down through the street, you'll come to a thick layer of, of, of black, which is the great fire of London. It's still there. Yeah. You know, the burnt layer is still there. It's all there. The like a great book of pages with, and in the same way that a book, you can trap your flowers from a loved one in between the pages and keep them as mementos. Yeah. It's all there. Well, they discovered, the I think it, was, it was only two or three years ago, I think, they discovered an entire Roman um, uh, series of ruins underneath a building that they were putting up in Cannon Street, um, which I think was turned out to be the new headquarters for Bloomberg. And they, they discovered this entire um, sort of, you know, pretty intact um, Roman villa, which they didn't even know was there. Yes, and I, for me, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's inescapable for me. Of course it is, because I am drawn to a subject like archaeology and I'm fascinated by, by, the, by the story that history gives us or the stories, in plural, that history gives us. And I would never want to be without any of them. That's just not the way I would approach it. And so you, I don't see that you don't rename things. You, you, you make new things. Mm. And you come up with you come up with additional and new stories that tell the story of the generations that are here now, and in a thousand years, the contribution by by the by the present generations will be there along with everything else. But it's a terrible act of hubris and vanity to decide that you can look back a couple of hundred years, consider a whole set of years and and accomplishments as mistakes or wrong, and and rather than perhaps learning from that and, and moving on to, to contemplate its destruction and to take it away as though it was never there i fail to understand how that helps anyone yeah very dangerous you know, times. Every, every story every every book you know you don't want you don't have a book that's just happy you don't watch a movie and it's all just happy there's there's jeopardy and there's you know there are there are, there's, there are shades of light and dark but they're, they're part of what makes the story educational you know, you learn from every part of the past. And so you keep it as far as possible. You keep it and you learn from it and you build on it. But you, it's all foundational levels. You don't, you don't suddenly create a new level floating in midair. Inevitably, it has to be built on, on, on the last thing that was done. But you don't throw it away. No, absolutely not. Neil, great to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. The podcast is called um, uh, Love Letters to the British Isles and we'll talk to you same time next week. Neil Oliver, uh, thank you very much indeed. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's go uh, right now to Spain to find out what the latest situation is. Lisa Francesca Nand uh, is a travel journalist, host of the Big Travel Podcast. Lisa, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so now you appear to be, uh, I don't know whether you were planning to be there for quite a long time, but I know lots of people who uh, don't have to come back to Britain have just decided they might as well stay in Spain for a while uh, and sort of ride it all out, as it were. Yeah, I mean, when we first got the news over here, I know lots of local people, lots of people here on holiday and lots of British people were thinking, let's try and scramble to get back as soon as possible before the midnight deadline. And of course, it wasn't possible. I do know some people that went to other countries, but that wasn't possible either to get them back before the quarantine. So they had to go in quarantine. Me personally, I'm actually here until the beginning of September. And I did know when I came out that there might be a possibility of some changes. I mean, who knows what's happening almost day to day. Mm at the moment so you know who knows what's happening uh, by september i don't know whether what it will mean to me i'm lucky as i'm self-employed but of course a lot of people who are now stuck here you know obviously it's a lovely place to be stuck but they'll be wondering what on earth they will do when they get back and how they'll manage to wrangle it with their employers to, to try and take another 14 days off or working from home well that's right and you're near marbella somewhere i think aren't you yeah, I'm in Malaga down on. So the province is Malaga in Andalusia, and I'm in a little area called Fuengarola uh, that's quite popular with tourists I know and well. second homeowners. So it's lovely here, you know, and we're all wearing masks, and you have to walk down the street in a mask, which is interesting because you think that's probably the least place you're going likely to get it. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not a scientist. You can take it off when you get into bars and restaurants, and the bars and restaurants are busy. People are socially distancing in a completely different way here than in the UK. You know, like the waiter will come up and put his hand on your shoulder. And at first you're like, oh, this is a bit freaky. <laughs> um, I've been stopped by the police a couple of times, which is interesting. Um, one, because when I was going for a run with a friend, we dared to slow for a, to a walk and um, had our masks off still. And they said, oh, you get back, uh, put your, your masks on. Luckily, they didn't find us. Mm. And another time for my child, my five-year-old was sw- swimming in the sea and had a float um that wasn't armbands or rubber ring and they said hey he can't have that and i was like look he's five like he's not going to spread the virus on a tiny floaty thing yeah. in the mediterranean but you know the rules them rules are them rules aren't they mike yeah they really are funnily enough you'll probably notice or, or it may have changed by then but certainly since you left uh, these shores people are wearing masks a lot more on the streets as well because of what happened on friday which was that masks are now um are compulsory if you go into a shop although bizarrely there are still plenty of people not wearing them but a lot of people now wearing masks walking around the street the spanish government have been sort of trying to persuade the british government to lift the the, the balearics and also the canary islands maybe out of this uh, quarantine business are they having any success do you think or are you hearing that Uh, No success so far. I know that Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister, has been complaining about the quarantine. I mean, it just does seem ridiculous. Like here in Andalusia, we've got 11 cases Mm. per 100,000 people. Okay, in Catalonia, which is 200 miles away, you've got a rise in cases. But it's like, you know, when we had the the, uh, mini lockdown in Leicester, it's like putting the whole country on quarantine Mm. because of that. Now, I realise that outbreaks are going to happen. You know, this is a virus that's worldwide. It's not going away. But this, it just feels a bit like, you know, the Spanish government agree. It feels too big. And I know they are talking, want to talk about doing um, regional uh, air corridors, they're calling them, Mm. uh, to try and get agreements with places like this, which it relies on tourism. And they're desperate to get people here. And it isn't the same as normal. It's not as busy as normal. And I know that they want to try and sort of open up those corridors. But who knows? You know, the advice changes um, day to day. It was changing half an hour to half an hour Mm. on Saturday. So, Anything can happen, but I, I hope what does happen 
is that the UK government sees sense and we think, yes, we want everyone to be safe, but there's no point putting everyone coming in from the whole country when the whole country and particularly the islands as well, like you said, the Balearics and Canary Islands, mm. they've very, very few cases. It's just it's just too much. It's too much of a big decision. Yes. And they're quite a long way away from mainland Spain anyway. And the other thing for me about sort of, you know, yes, there's a problem in Catalonia, but if you come uh, for a holiday in Marbella, uh, you're not likely to go anywhere else. You're not likely to get in a car and drive to Barcelona. If you're a British, uh, you know, traveller, travelling with your family, you're going to be in a resort, you're going to be in a hotel. I mean, that's what you're going there to do. You're just going to fly and flop, as we used to call it. You're just going to lie there by the pool drinking pina coladas, probably. Um, so it would make perfect sense for that to be uh, allowed to be done. But as far as um, the, the holiday companies are concerned, I understand some of them are refusing now to fly to Spain, which also surprises me slightly, given that you can fly to Portugal still, uh, even though that was never uh, on, a, on a sort of a good list, if you like. I think people are a little bit scared and rightly so. It's quite a big deal to say, well, the government have told us not to go there. Mm. So, you know, let's go on holiday there anyway. I mean, I'm here now and it feels absolutely fine. But if I was still in the UK, I'd be thinking, well, actually, the government have told us not to go somewhere. That feels like a big deal to go against them. And I think the travel companies are thinking them that the same. Mm. Um, 2E, Jet2 have cancelled holidays to the early or, or middle part of August. And that's going to have a huge knock-on effect on people's holidays and businesses and everything like that. And so far, EasyJet and BA and Ryanair, most of them are going ahead. But a lot of, you know, I wouldn't blame people for thinking, well, actually, um, you know, the government have said do not go to this country. My travel insurance probably isn't going to be that valid. Um, I don't I don't blame people for not th- for thinking, oh, I might try and cancel or or change, uh, you know, change my booking. But, you know, I would say to anyone thinking of coming here, it's great. It's lovely. You're not going to go to Catalonia where the cases are high. But again, they're not as high as, you know, as they could be. They're really, you know, it is really lovely here. And I would say, you know, if you don't mind the issue about the travel insurance, and luckily we still have health insurance with the as part of the EU until January, then, you know, come. It's a, it's, it's a really nice thing. If you're a traveller and a fan of holidays and, you, you know, you really need a break, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think so. And I guess a lot of people will be taking the view that if they can work from home, then the quarantine situation back home may not be that difficult because... As I've said all day uh, and, and for, for quite some time, the British version of a quarantine is not really that draconian. You're still allowed to go out if you have to. You're still allowed to get food in uh, if you have to go out and buy it. And, and it's really not as if you're kind of locked in a cell um, where you can't go out for, for, you know, basically two weeks. I, th- I think you, you must know more about it than me. But I heard that actually it was uh, when you're on quarantine, it is actually more strict. The rules are more strict than when we are on proper lockdown. But you know, how are they going to police it, really? I mean, I'm not advocating doing anything illegal at all, but I can imagine that some people will be doing. But yeah, I mean, there are many exceptions as well, you know, depending on your job, yeah. you are probably exempt from it. Um, but um, And there's also self-employed people like me, I could get away with it, retired people as well. But there are also going to be a lot of people who are stuck here now or due to go on holiday, who have ordinary jobs, who cannot say to their employer, hey, I'm going to work from home for for 14 days and get away with it and then you know those are the people who are going to be really concerned mm, exactly right and are you seeing quite a lot of brits i mean we were told i think on monday 600,000 british people on holiday uh, in spain which i presume includes the islands as well uh, but it's quite a lot of people considering that you know uh, if you'd said to me three months ago uh, in the midst of the pandemic you know are you going on holiday to europe this year i think i'd have probably said probably not yeah, it's really interesting because I've been here three and a half weeks now and I've noticed it changing during that time. When yeah. I first got here on July the 8th, 
it was fascinating to see the seafront so quiet and also to see this sounds really awful the way I say it, but to see so many brown Spanish bodies on the beach and they weren't interspersed with the usual very tasty, you know, <laughs> Brits and people from abroad. It's, it's, it's a, a fact, you know, it's true. You think it looks different, you know, when you see people lying on the beach, it yeah. does really look different. And we were seeing people um, creeping back, you know, the sort of obvious, more obvious looking tourists sort of creeping back. And there are a few here now. Um, but you're nowhere near as, as much as normal. And actually, the, the atmosphere is lovely. You know, it's really nice to go into places and have a lot of Spanish people around us. Of course, they're always here. But um, it just feels more Spanish, ironically, given it's Spain. It feels mm. more Spanish than normal. Uh, the nightlife is still ongoing. I went out. It was my birthday on the weekend. I had quite a big night out, Mike, for my sins. And um, there, there wasn't as much social distancing, shall I say, going on um, in, as in the UK pubs and things right. like that. So, well, one uh, of the things we well, well, this is one of the problems they apparently had in Barcelona was they opened up a load of nightclubs and loads of people went to the nightclubs um, and did not social distance at all. Uh, and now they've got a spike of, of COVID with with quite a lot of young people. So are the nightclubs now closed or are they open again? I read something today in Spanish and I haven't seen a translation yet. My Spanish is pretty good, but I just read it before coming on here that they are considering limiting capacity for indoor night venues, further limiting. Um, but that was literally just before I spoke to you. So I don't know exactly what they're doing. When right. I went out on Friday and I'm going clubbing again on uh, on Saturday, you know, social distance clubbing here is outside. You know, right. there's a lot of sidebars. So I can probably tell you uh, if you want to know early next week uh, about my clubbing experience. Um, but it is different. Like people are wearing masks in the street. But then as soon as you do go and sit in a cafe or bar or in a restaurant, you know, you, you're not, you're, you are mingling a little bit. I have to say I am following all rules uh, here, completely following all rules, um, but they just are slightly different than the, the UK and elsewhere. And also, you know, we, we all question the rules, don't we? And, and to see, you know, a bit like the wearing masks along the roads when, you know, you're, I think very unlikely to catch it from someone walking past you at a reasonable speed, mm. um, but who knows? But I am following the rules and that includes going out at night and you know doing what the locals do so it'll be interesting to see what happens but the the levels here even throughout the crisis the levels in andalusia uh, have been so low anyway and the lockdown's so strict that you have to hope um that that, that there's very little chance of catching anything but yeah. you know who knows? yeah i mean does it feel for you like a more open uh, sort of society than than britain did when you left yeah. It, oh, you know, Mike, I left on July the 8th. And as I recall, I think that's just a few days after. Yeah, it was the Wednesday. It was just a few days after the pubs had opened. Mm. And I did actually go and sit. And I remember you went to sit in a beer garden as well, didn't you? And I went to sit in a beer garden. We did a show from one. And it, Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, it was, I mean, to get here, you know, it felt like, it felt like such a ridiculous thing to even get to the end of the road, you know, during lockdown or even to get into central London. And I live or lived in, a, in, in a southeast London, even mm. to get into the centre of town uh, felt like such a big deal. So to find myself on an aeroplane, you know, go flying to Spain, it just felt crazy. It felt surreal. It was like I'd forgotten everything to do with like the airport. And mm. as you know, I'm a frequent traveller. And then when I got here, like the first night, I, you know, I was wearing the mask, walking down the street and I went down to my local beach bar and the waitress put her arm around me. It's like I haven't been touched by anyone outside my household for right. four months. And here's like a random waitress putting her arm around me. The Spanish are still kissing each other. Hello. Some people give each other the, uh, the literal elbow. Yeah. Um, but most people will, will sort of kiss each other. Hello. So it is it is different, uh, you know, in 
in the UK, we often don't kiss each other at all. And, you know, I'm guessing that people have stopped shaking hands. I don't know. You tell me. But well, yeah, I think people have started different. shaking hands again, funnily enough. I mean, it seems to be uh, depending again. It's it's a group think thing because it depends on which group you're in. If you're in the group of people who doesn't think it's a good idea to go to the pub, you won't be shaking hands with them. But a lot of people who do think it's a good idea will be shaking hands with you. Yeah, it's. It, I think it's very interesting the people that do and don't and how the divisions, it's almost like Brexit all over again, isn't it? When you get like people who are very strict about lockdowns and saying you shouldn't, you know, I was very strict about the lockdown and, you know, I followed the, the rules and laws, but that means like going out now, it's deemed that we can go out and legal to go out. You know, I'm, I'm doing that too and going into the bars and restaurants, but it is very interesting to see how divided people have become and how angry people have become, even when people are following the laws. Um, because they think they should be going that little bit further. Mm. And is there any talk of testing people coming into Spain at all? Because obviously the reason apparently that this lockdown or the quarantine was brought back in by Chris Whitty, chief medical officer, was because 10 people tested positive coming back from Spain. I'm not sure whether that was in an airport situation or whether it was after they got home. But is there any suggestion that, that tourists might be tested as they arrive? There's the suggestion. There's uh, two camps on that, and uh, you know I've seen quite a bit talked about it in this, by the Spanish government and the UK government. Indeed, that some people say we really should be testing. You know, Iceland are giving people the option now, the the country, not the uh, not the shop, to uh, be tested on arrival and uh, pay for it themselves mm. or choose a quarantine. Uh, and I know that's something that some people think is okay. Um, I think it would be a good idea to test people. However, some people are going to slip through the net because they don't necessarily that the test apparently doesn't necessarily give you a positive if you're very um, mm. uh, recently infected. So, I mean, yeah, it's probably be something expensive to do, but would it be better than totally isolating everyone and, you know, thus killing off the travel industry potentially as it is at the moment? Let's not forget how many jobs and, you know, do rely on travel. And yeah. I was just speaking to a, a friend the other day who works in a barbershop um, near in the middle of Sussex. And or you wouldn't think that was related to travel, but it's where everyone who works at the airport goes to get their hair cut. Right. And, um, you know, business is down to, compared to, you know, a good 50% down compared to normal. So it's not just that the jobs that are effective and, uh, affected and the livelihoods are not just the ones that if you're working for the airline, you know, or the airport, it, it's a huge knock on thing. So, you know, it, it's expensive to test people, but it's also expect, it's expensive to to lose a lot of a lot of jobs. No, absolutely right. Well, Lisa, have a good time uh, clubbing. I'm quite jealous, I have to say, if you've been able to go clubbing on a beach in Spain. It doesn't sound bad at all. Uh, it sounds a lot better than being stuck here. But thank you, Lisa Francesca Nan, travel journalist, hosting the big travel podcast live uh, from Fuengirola uh, down there in southern Spain. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.